Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. And Josh, I'm recording this at home, which means I'm working where I live. I'm breaking the rule number one, Josh! <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that, these that intros anymore. They got, a, they got the rules of the conning, and that's rule number one. Don't work where you live. And, you know, I'm the, we're all doing it right now. Are you are you conning us? Is that what you're saying, Jason? Are you you is this whole podcast a sham? It's been a long game, Josh. I said the first day of my junior year of high school, I'm gonna be friends with that guy. Then maybe 24, 25 years later, we'll create a podcast. Somewhere along the line, we'll find a guy who used to fancy himself a novelty Jewish rap act, and maybe he's gotten himself together to record. And here we are, baby. It all worked out. I still don't know how that's a con, but why are we talking about cons in this season of Awesome Movie Year? We are talking about the films of 2003, and part of the con here is that Jason has picked as his 2003 pick Matchstick Men, the con artist film starring Nicolas Cage, Sam Rockwell, and Alison Lohman. And uh, what uh, what is your motivation here, Jason? Why did you pick this one? I think, Josh, it's because I confused it with bandits. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is that the, the, the Bruce Willis, Billy Bob Thornton movie? Yeah, I think uh, maybe not as simple as that. I remember liking this one and I remember liking that one. And I was like, well, might as well roll the dice and see what comes up. <laughs> I really did like both of them. <laughs> I had a few other choices I could have gone with, but honestly, I think, like I said, uh, to tease it, this is a Ridley Scott film. You got Nicolas Cage, you got Sam Rockwell, huge stars, a huge director, and and I and I honestly, maybe Alison Lohman's the best thing in the movie, right? But I think this is an overlooked movie that you wouldn't really, if you didn't know about it, like there was, there's no reason to know about it unless someone tells you about it, which is why we're here, Josh. Now, I agree, and uh, I, I don't know what the whole deal was with... I think I saw Bandits. Is that also from 2003? I think it's maybe from a year or two, maybe 2000, but uh, I might have confused them. That one has the two guys, and I think... And it's got Kate Blanchett, and she and Allison Lohman, they're both ladies, you know? And then uh, and then Barry Levinson and Ridley Scott, they're both big directors. It's easy to see where I... Well, Josh, yeah. I'm just bringing a little, little levity to this situation. I picked this one because I remember liking it and I haven't seen it since. And I think it was worth a revisit. Yeah, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I just find this whole situation uh, amusing. That, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not like movie. when I like 96 where I was like Swingers. I love it. It's one of my favorite movies ever. It was like, I remember this being a good movie. I normally choose movies not like this. Let's do something a little different here. Yeah, I'm I'm all for it. I was I was happy that you chose this movie because this is a movie that I might have chosen. I mean, uh, I I sort of took the same strategy with Down with Love that that it was a movie that I remembered liking and that people don't necessarily know about, and so I wanted to uh, give it uh, some some attention. And I would have felt the same way about this one. So I'm I'm glad we're doing it. Whatever whatever con the movie worked on you to make you think it was a different movie. I am uh, I'm glad that we ended up uh, with this one. And it was a movie that was kind of overlooked even at the time that it was released, despite having, uh, as you say, these big stars and a major director. Uh, and it did premiere at the Venice International Film Festival, so that's a, a pretty good launch pad for it. But it wasn't a, a big hit or, or really a hit at all. It grossed uh, $65.6 million um, on its budget of $62 million. So, I mean, you factor in advertising and whatnot, and that's not a movie that even really made a profit. Yeah, it made um, its money back with home video and, you know, cable sales. Probably eventually, but certainly not a big hit and, and not for Ridley Scott um, having, you know, being, being this big blockbuster hit maker of the time. And, and the response to it was also mixed. Uh, from audiences, it got a B from CinemaScore, the audience polling service, and and that's a fairly low score uh, on their on their scale. It means that a lot of those audiences were, were probably not that enthused with it, and it got sort of mixed to positive reviews. Let's say from critics. I mean, a lot of you go on Rotten Tomatoes and it has a high rating, but a lot of the positive reviews that are marked positive are like, yeah, it was not bad. You know, they're not super high on it. But uh, Roger Ebert 
was, however, really into this movie, gave it four out of four stars. And uh, he starts out by talking about how it does sort of three different things as this con artist movie. And then he says, I wish that you had seen the movie so we could discuss what a sublime job it does of doing full justice to all three of these stories, which add up to more or perhaps less than the sum of their parts. The screenplay for Matchstick Men is an achievement of Oscar caliber, so absorbing that whenever it cuts away from, quote, the plot, there is another better plot to cut to. Brothers Ted and Nicholas Griffin adapted it from the novel by Eric Garcia. Nicholas Cage bought the movie rights before it was published, and no wonder, because the character of Roy is one of the great roles of recent years. He's a nutcase, a clever crook, and a father who learns to love all in one. Cage effortlessly plays these three sides to his character, which by their nature would seem to be in conflict. It is a very well-written movie, I think. Yeah, and Nicolas Cage, like, you know, we like we all kind of love him last year in uh, Color Out of Space, right? Um, which, But that's Nicolas Cage at his most crazy, you know, eccentric Nicolas Cagey. I think this is a really good balance of showing, like, he used to be, you know, a very good, serious actor with a little eccentricity to him. Right. And I mean, you can definitely see in this movie sort of the beginnings or the hints of that really crazy persona. Not that this is the only one. I mean, he's had that from the start, but just kind of going all out with that as he does in most movies these days. But there's still a lot of grounded emotion to his character. And I think that's, as as Ebert's kind of pointing out, that's the balance of the movie, that it's this kind of twisty con artist movie, but it's also about this guy discovering how much he loves being a father and, and connecting with this daughter that he uh, never knew, uh, played by Alison Lohman, and really just opening up emotionally because of that, which is something yeah. that he never thought he would have. And Josh, wh- when he says three stories, to me, it was really two stories. What did you think the third story was in there? Uh, you know, he, he says it, I didn't, I didn't quote that part because it was kind of convoluted, but, um, (laughs) give me a moment. I could pull that up, but I mean, I think certainly there's, there's sort of the twisty. Maybe that's the third story is it's the story of these two, you know, the two partners and then the story of him connecting with this long lost daughter and then the long con, uh, you know, the third act, which is a huge con is kind of its own story. Yeah. Well, I guess what Ebert is saying is it is, it's the story of him reconnecting with the daughter. Uh, It's the story of the con that uh, Roy and his partner played by Sam Rockwell are pulling. And then it's the story of his sort of, of Roy's own midlife crisis. Although I feel like that and the story of him reconnecting with the daughter are really essentially the same. That's part of the same. That is that is Ebert's conception of how it's three different stories. I mean, and I think that's that's fine for him to point out. But to me, what's good about the movie is that it isn't three different stories. It's all of that stuff overlaps and works well together. Yeah, I agree. I agree that that is very important. If you didn't if they weren't working in a tapestry, then the whole third act would have fallen apart. Yeah, absolutely. And it it comes together, I think, really effectively. Uh, Again, overall, critics were kind of mixed on this. Uh, Lisa Schwartzbaum in Entertainment Weekly gave it a mixed review. She said, the enlightened concept of bad guys in real pain and the added gloss of empathy for a father surprised by the depth of love for his kid amount to about as earnest an attempt as any at freshening the sleight of hand genre. Certainly Nicolas Cage's energized participation and Alison Lohman's striking charisma are welcome additives. Yet when the last hoop has been jumped through, it's the gimmickry we remember, not the trumpeted emotional growth of the principles. And I, I don't necessarily agree. I feel like, again, those things, we remember both of those things because they work so well together. I agree with you, Josh. Not you, Schwartzbaum. <laughs> uh, um, but no, I, I, I don't know how you're separating these elements. It is, it, you know, they're all woven throughout the whole movie. It, each thing is important to the next thing. You're right. I, I think so. And yeah, even even Ebert, who thinks it's so great, um, is is trying to separate those elements. And I think that that's uh, wrong. But I, I, a lot of critics were very dismissive, especially of the twists of this movie and the whole con artist aspect and didn't seem to think that that emotional resonance uh, was enough. Where, again, I, I, I don't agree. I feel like that's what elevates this movie is that it's a great, fun, twisty con artist movie that also has these great character relationships to it. I like how 
it seems like from the reviews that you've already sampled and probably all of them, we're talking about Nicolas Cage as a Hollywood leading man here, right? And I think we forget that uh, in the last 10 years because he's just gone uh, bunko wacko crazy. Although he's had a lot of success in that as bunko wacko crazy, but he was like one of the top leading men in Hollywood for a good decade, you know, mid 90s right. to mid 2000s. So that was, I think, one of the things that um, I wanted to kind of spotlight with this movie as well. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the the critics are all looking at this as like a big star vehicle for this guy who is a huge star. I mean, this movie came either right after or right before the first National Treasure movie, which was this massive blockbuster. So, I mean, he was certainly right at the height of his popularity here. Um, Lou Luminick in the New York Post was not really a fan. He said, anyone who regularly watches caper flicks will likely quickly figure out what's wrong with this picture though the twist ending is likely to be a surprise for the less jaded. As performances go, though, the movie provides a certain amount of fun. Like Adaptation, which coincidentally starred Nicolas Cage as a pair of twin screenwriting brothers, Matchstick Men suddenly turns from a lightweight comedy drama into something darker and more violent in the third act. As if that weren't jolting enough, there's a phony, feel-happy coda that seems as if it were tacked on in response to disappointing test screenings. Despite the fine acting, you may end up feeling as suckered as Roy's victims. And I, I disagree with all of that. Uh, I think the shift into like being a little more violent or whatever really goes smoothly. And I love the coda. I don't know if it was added. I didn't see anything about it being added in reshoots or anything like that. But even if it was, I think it's great. So uh, boo all around to him. Yeah, why is he like yeah. coincidentally, which he coincidentally played twins. He didn't play twins in this one. I don't know what that has to do with anything. And it's not a coincidence. Yeah. That was the Those were the characters he was uh, that were in the script for him to play in that movie. Sorry, Dave. I know I'm defending your favorite movie of all time, but one of us has to. Dave loves adaptation, mm -hmm. guys. Th thank, thank you for doing I that. I agree with you, Josh. Um, the I do think that is what happened was that um, there was some, you know, kind of blowback from the studio. We don't want, you know, our hero to go down. And, you know, maybe in the original script, I think maybe that didn't even happen. Right. But then Ridley Scott said it's going to happen and we'll add this coda. So everyone kind of gets what they want out of it. Yeah, that may be. And I was trying to remember, I actually read the book. I like this movie so much that I read the book that it was based on, but I don't remember anything. About but my it. guess is there's no coda in the book. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was trying to, I, was trying, I don't remember if there is or there isn't. Yeah. So, uh, so Jason, do you want to tell us about the first time that you saw Bandits? <laughs> Bandits is a very good film. Um, I rented it at Blockbuster and I rented this at Blockbuster. I think uh, there were similarities and uh, I was, you know, making light of that. I like both these movies. Right. Um, right. This, uh, this is a really kind of cool, fun look at a, not just con men, but industrial LA-ish stuff, you know, and um, and I like all the acting, but Allison Lohman is just, you, like, I was like, come back to the screen. Where are you, Allison Lohman? We miss you. Yeah, she is, she is so good. And I remember thinking that watching this movie, I saw it in the theater and thinking she is so good. And I had just, I think, fairly recently seen White Oleander that she was also really good in. Um, around the same time and thinking, wow, she's just, this is a great new star and I can't wait to see what she does after this. So I like this movie a lot, right? From the start, I remember seeing it in the theater and giving it a good review. And I think maybe being a little disappointed that it didn't become a bigger deal than it was. Um, Dave, did you see this when it came out? Yeah, I saw it in the theater and I stupidly don't think I liked it that much. And I don't really know why I, I can't figure that out because I liked it so much this time. Yeah, I think it's, I don't know if we could call this a cult classic, but it has built up a bit more of a following, I think, than it has. See, Josh, I picked it and we've already won Dave over. <laughs> That's a guy, I've been saying this whole time. It's a good pick. I've, I'm, I would, you know, if you had picked Bandits, uh, aside from it possibly not having come out in 2003, I, I think I would have, I would not have been as enthused. You know, when we get to that year, I am going to pick Bandits no matter what else is there. <laughs> 2001. Yeah, 2001. Bandits is a good movie, but that's not the point of this episode, Josh. No, um, it really isn't. So yeah. we'll talk, stop talking about Bandits. But Josh, you know, um, yes, it had a big, you know, $60 million budget, which things really don't have now. But $65 million, not, not a bad take. You know, it's just that, 
every we're used to this terms of you know everything five million and under or two hundred million and over at this point. Right. This movie uh, on this scale would not be made now. Like no studio would spend. I mean, and that's oh, sixty. Yeah. This is a Netflix 60, movie right now. Right, and that's sixty-two million in two thousand three dollars. So Lord knows what it would be now. But even Netflix would they would make it maybe, but they wouldn't spend that much on it. I think so. yeah, you could get the sixty-two million maybe now. But yeah, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of that was. Nick Cage was probably close to 20, right, at this point right. in time. So, And uh, Ridley Scott, he, uh, he comes with a hefty price tag, especially after Gladiator, which he, uh, which he also directed in that one, Best Picture. Gosh. It did. Yeah, I mean, both of them were huge and really at the height of their box office success at this point. So it makes sense that they would have been both paid very, very well and that there would have been high expectations from the studio for this movie to perform, which obviously were not meant but now it's an episode of awesome movie year so it's a who win. wins in the end really the long con That's baby right. exactly <laughs> so we'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on matchstick man welcome back to awesome movie year in this episode of our season on the films of 2003 we're talking about jason's pick matchstick men and, uh, I mean, we kind of got, went over this, uh, you know, the reasoning behind your pick here and, and I'm with you. I think this is a movie that's, that's underrated that more people ought to know about. Yeah. I mean, when you look at like Ridley Scott, right, you think alien, you think Thelma and Louise gladiator, black Hawk down American gangster, right? All those big movies, but he's made other good movies. And, um, this is, this is like, it's kind of fun when you see like, um, a master of his craft in one of their like kind of lost, I'm not going to call it a classic, but one of like their lost films, right? Like, you know, we always talk about Scorsese when I was in college, King of comedy, nobody ever talked about. Now I think it's got its due regard, but when I saw it, then it was like, well, this is such a great discovery. So, you know, with our picks, we do um, not just movies we love, but things that are worth discovering. And that's kind of where I am with this. Um, and with Ridley Scott, man, he moves the camera so smoothly. I love it. You know, when um, you're kind of in these ranch style, single story houses, uh, all, all of Nicolas Cage, everything in his house is like that. And uh, he just really moves the camera so fluidly from room to room. It's a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. And this is definitely an outlier for him. You know, not only was this movie not a huge hit or anything, but it, it's he's known for action. His whole career is action and intense thrillers. and. Um, big, large, large scale kind of stories, both, both before this and after this. So it's, it's definitely something that was unexpected from him at the time and is still unexpected. If you know, Ridley Scott's career and you stumble on this and you like, he really, he directed this. I think when I reviewed it, I wrote that he was trying to kind of copy Steven Soderbergh, which I, I feel like is maybe a little reductive of Steven Soderbergh, but you can see that. Yeah. Especially with like the, the color palette, you know, what he's doing to uh, saturate the colors there um, of uh, just kind of the overall look. And um, yeah, and obviously Soderbergh, we know uh, I, I, out of sight's not a bad comparison to this, right? In some ways. Right. But. I just mean, I think Soderbergh has a lot more versatility than to imply that this, he only makes like this kind of movie. And that's what uh, Scott was trying to make. But of course, uh, Ted Griffin, also a writer on uh, Ocean's Eleven. And I think maybe on Ocean's 13 as well. So that's that's a lot of what people were thinking of, I think, at the time. Right. Yeah, I do think, you know, the big thing, Josh, is that is did it work for you when it kind of switched gears in the con and got a little more violent? And we've talked about movies that kind of switched tones uh, part of the way through. Even Saturday Night Fever, I remember talking about. I thought I thought it really worked here from the last uh, half of Act 2 or uh, into Act 3. I thought it really worked. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think this movie is it, it balances a lot of its different tones, its different approaches, and it it all holds together. And that was why I'm talking about, you know, that that coda for whatever the reason was that it was that it was put in at whatever stage it was put in. Like I I feel like it really ties the movie together so well and and follows up on so many of the character beats it doesn't feel like it comes out of nowhere it feels like it's the culmination of what these characters have been doing for the whole movie i agree and hey if you haven't seen the movie pause uh pause the episode now because we'll get into some spoilers here right 
Um, yes. So Frank and Roy are partners, and Frank is um, kind of the protege of Roy, right? But what we find out in Act 3 is that Frank set this whole thing up as a long con, and he is conning Roy into believing that the Allison Lohman character, Angela, is his long-lost daughter, and it just turned all out to be a big scam so he could get access to Frank's safe deposit box and get all of his money. And then um, as uh, Roy figures this out, we cut to this, you know, and he's at his super low point. We cut to one year later, and he's gone straight, and now he's working in a... um, in a uh, carpet store and he's just kind of very zen about things like he accepts that he lost everything and then we see angela come in just happenstance wise right and she looks different and like herself older and and they have a conversation and and part of me was rooting for roy to really confront her but then you kind of see like he owns that he he put himself in that position he was willing to win it all and he had to accept that he lost it all and in a way, it put him in a better place because he doesn't have to live that life anymore. Um, and he can, you know, as an honest, you know, day to day worker with a wife at home and a baby on the way, he can move on with his life. Just, I just spoiled the whole third act for everyone. So you, I you hope did. they did. You really stop. did. I hope they stopped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, I will say that, um, I mean, and this is the case for all of us, like having seen the movie before and knowing what that twist was, I still really enjoyed it. And I think you can appreciate a lot of the emotional journey of these characters, even if you know what the twist is going to be. And what's great is that it's not just that coda where you see that that Roy has had this emotional growth because of his connection with Angela, even though she's not really his daughter, that he has that growth throughout the film. And even if you realize that she's conning him, you can see that and you can see her having that growth too, that she is a professional and she never kind of waivers from the plan, you know, as far as we know, but she forms that real bond with him. And that's part of the con as he kind of talks about, you know, being a con artist. And he always says he's a con artist and not a con man, um, is about working people's emotions is about creating an actual connection with someone so that they want to give you their money. And, and she does that. So I feel like that's much better than if that coda had been him somehow getting revenge on her or something that would have been dissatisfying. Right. And I did not remember the, um, I, re- I, oh, okay. I, I, it kind of felt like a new experience to me all the way through, you know, me too, actually. And okay. I, you know, as it was happening, I was like, you know, the, the memories kind of came back, but I did not remember it, uh, going in. So, but just the little things like her, you know, as, as she's pretending to be this 14 year old, not going for uh, Roy's homemade spaghetti ayoyo and just always getting Domino's pizza and they're sitting on the floor. And, you know, he she does a good job of getting him out of his comfort zone, which is as a father, like one of the great things about being a parent is you're, you're willing to go out of your comfort zone for your kid. Uh, I am not a fan of flying. And I remember taking this flight with my daughter and it was uh, super bumpy the whole way so i would usually be like white knuckling it but she was like four at the time so she had to get up like every half hour to go to the bathroom and so while the rest of the plane was you know seat belts fastened no one get up if you don't have to i'm walking down the aisles bumping up and down and i don't even notice it because i'm taking care of my kid you know and i think you really do get that sense of that with the roy character and how he's willing to change his life for her yeah, he he will go kind of outside of himself where he's this person. He has all of these neuroses and these problems uh, that he's so fixated on his own mind that he can't uh, look beyond that. But because she comes into his life, he's able to, uh, you know, look at something outside of himself and find a, a larger purpose and, and a, a peace or, or sort of a Zen, as you say, that we see him in that coda. So... Uh, yeah, that works all really, really well. And as we were saying, Alison Lohman is so good in this movie. And she, who was 24 in, in real life at the time, is great at playing someone who is presumably also 24, but is pretending to be 14. And you believe mm. that. And you also believe just watching the movie that Alison Lohman herself could be 14. And so it's a really fantastic oh, performance. Oh, man, I, I think she, I agree on all of that. And I know she's married and uh, a mom now and i think that's kind of what she's focusing on raising her kids but like whenever she wants to come back she will be a welcome presence she is such a natural talent um and, and you know 
talking about the acting, you know, we talk about Nicolas Cage. Sam Rockwell, I think over the years has ascended. Like right now, he's the most famous of that bunch. But it's also got two of the great Bruce character actors, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, so uh, Altman and, and uh, McGill, who you've seen in hundreds of different movies. And um, they're both they're both just like, I guess in baseball, you would call them like utility players. They can do anything. Whatever position you need filled, they'll knock it out for you. And they do their jobs really well here. Yeah, Bruce Altman, who plays the, uh, it turns out to be fake, psychiatrist that Roy goes to see who encourages him to contact his daughter and Bruce McGill, who also plays the sort of fake Mark that Roy and Frank are conning, who is part of uh, Frank's larger con. But yeah, both of those guys always welcome to see who they pop up on TV and stuff all the time. And it's always nice to see them. And I think they, you know, they, they immerse you as a viewer in this world, but you can also see how they effectively immerse Roy in this world, right? They're all playing roles for his benefit. And it works. And the the whole third act plot twist doesn't work unless they're all encompassing and they're part of it, right? So when he goes back and he goes to Dr. Harris's office, right? Um, then, or Dr. Klein, Dr. Harris Klein is his name, Dr. Klein's office and it's empty and that's how he learns that he's part of it. Um, that's really effective. Uh, and I think um, with that Coda, Josh, one thing I really liked about it is you didn't have to see this romance build with him and his new wife. You saw these like nice little moments between them. Uh, she's the checkout person at the local grocery. And one of the last things you see um, with him before his life goes down the entire crapper is he finally asks her her name and, and, and tells her his name, even though they kind of already know it. And then it just kind of you're a year later, you kind of can put those pieces together. And I, I'm glad that they didn't hit us over the head with the, oh, and now we're going on a date and this and that, you know? Right. And this is a movie that could have had some sort of romance subplot or or even could have given Alison Lohman's character some sort of romance subplot or it could have been revealed. And I was I was wondering, because I didn't remember all the details, like, is it going to turn out that she was together with Frank or something in a romantic way that I feel like a, a lot of other movies would have done that? for the shock value of, oh, you thought this was a 14 year old and it's really not. Yeah. And they don't do any of that. And then she comes in with the coda with the doofy boyfriend played by uh, Fran Kranz, who's a great uh, doofy uh, actor. And <laughs> and it's it's like, is she conning him? And she says, I mean, maybe she's lying, but you believe her when she says, no, he's a good guy. He's really my boyfriend. And it's 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 sweet. It, it's like a weirdly wholesome movie in for all its con yeah. artist twists. Well, I mean, there is a romance. It's, it's a platonic romance of... Uh, dad falling in love with his daughter right and right um, right unfortunately it doesn't really work out for him although he does get the redemption of having the other chance and also in the end you know he still holds on to that in that coda where he's like you know they're like we had we had some fun together and she says i'll see you later dad like you know there is that like um and she says she got screwed over we don't know if she did or not but um there is that lovingness between those two even though uh one ruined the other one's life completely Right. And you could almost imagine, I mean, not that I want to see Matchstick Men too, but you could almost imagine that they would stay in touch and become friends, like genuinely, because they had that actual bond. And, you know, she could be the the aunt to his, uh, you know, child that he's about to have with his uh, checkout, uh, grocery checkout wife Kathy, there. Yeah. So, they can, they can teach the kid to be a con artist together. And, right. you know, he can start conning other kids in the school. <laughs> and we're in business, baby. Sounds great. One of my favorite things about Alison Lohman in this is how amused she is at Nicolas Cage. Uh, she just like, you could just see it on her face, just how great and funny she thinks he is. And, you know, is that, you know, her, you know, playing it up for his, you know, amusement, you know, it's hard to say, but I just love that. Well, so much. Dave, I actually thought of you watching it at a few points where Nicolas Cage does Nicolas Cage up a few things where. Sure. You know, she's yelling at him like, don't you have any real food in this house? All you have is tuna fish. And he so like he's so affected by that line. And he just goes, I like tuna fish. You know, <laughs> it's so funny in the way he delivers it. And it uh, yeah, I just thought stuff like that was was really fun. So. Right. I mean, and I think going to what Dave's saying, you can tell that that Angela is genuinely like 
enamored of Roy. And and again, yeah. she does she doesn't waver. And I feel like another thing a worse movie would do is it would have a scene of her with Frank, like, I can't go through with this. He's too she's I like him too much or whatever. And and they never have that. Right. Um, but you can tell that she does genuinely feel that way and she's enjoying herself and she likes having the bond that they have, even though it's fake. Right. The easy thing to do would would be to have him find out he was, you know, being conned and then reverse the con and then, you know, the wind isn't out of his sails. But I'm glad that they, you know, kind of punched the audience in the stomach with that. Um, Josh, have you ever pulled a pigeon drop? Uh, which one is that? I, I mean, like, like which one? Like, oh, I've done a few cons, so maybe. Uh, no, which, whichever one it is, I have not done. And Dave, what about you? A Jamaican switch? Have you ever, have you ever ran one of those? Uh, no, that that's not in my repertoire. We should have had my, I mean, uh, we should have had my uncle on the show, who is a con man slash artist, possibly reformed, possibly not. But once he was telling me about these crazy cons he pulled, and I was like, I just got to record these. These are all movies waiting to happen. Wow. Yeah, that's I don't I, I don't remember if you've told me about that, but that's uh, that's amazing that your uncle was an actual con artist. Yeah, yeah, um, he definitely was. Yeah. Slash wow. is. <laughs> Slash is, right? Is he, is, he, is he really your uncle, Jason? Has he been conning you this whole time? I, I don't know what he would be getting out of it, to be honest with you. But A guest <laughs> appearance on Awesome Movie Year? It would be Possibly. a good, really good episode. It would be, it would be to our benefit. The, the, they're very intricate, you know? They have to think, as bad as these people might be, they have to think uh, so many steps ahead and on so many different levels, right? Because they have to handle every aspect of a con. Right. But I, I will say that that one thing I liked about this movie that it didn't do that a lot of con artist movies do is that the twists are so convoluted and all of these little bits are, are these dominoes that are set up that when you get to the big reveal at the end, they have to spend five minutes flashing back to every little thing to show how it worked. And you don't even necessarily understand that. Like they didn't do that. We didn't need the flashbacks to show Frank recruiting the Bruces to to participate or whatever. And there weren't like a million different levels to the twist. It was just like, oh, you immediately understand it. They were conning him. Right. Well, together. he took a chance on finding Roy's weakness, which happened to be getting in there emotionally. Right. And that's how. Right. That's how it worked. And, you know, the other thing is a lot of the time, like Roy is our protagonist. So you want him to get like he got his comeuppance fine, but you want the other characters to get their comeuppance and they really don't. And it's sure they're all con men slash artists. So maybe down the line they will, but we'll never see that. And maybe they won't. Maybe they're all living on a beach in Mexico somewhere, you know. Right. So I thought that was good in that, you know, they didn't uh, Hollywoodize it too much. Right. And I mean, maybe that's one reason why this wasn't a bigger hit that it didn't have the the broader beats that maybe a wider audience would want or expect out of a movie like this but i do think it's better because of that um and you know we don't know for example what frank's fate is you know we don't see him in the coda we know he kind of screwed over angela but did he himself get screwed over later and and he's if there's a villain of this movie it's really him and yet you know he never gets his comeuppance we never get that level of satisfaction but i think that's fine. yeah i think the one murky part might be when the bruce mcgill character you know is at roy's house and frank is beaten up or is he right probably not right and then allison loman ends up killing that character like is that how, how does that how much of it was planned and how much of it went awry and if she didn't shoot him how are they going to knock out roy and all that fun stuff you know Right. Well, I don't think she really shoots him because Roy goes, he's lying there and Roy goes oh. back to do what he thinks is to, you know, get rid of this dead body. And then he gets knocked over the head, I assume, by that guy. Right. I assume um, that he did, too. But I just assumed it was one of those like I've been shot and now I pass out and now I wake up and beat you up type things. I mean, I think that's what we're meant to think at the time because we don't know the twist. But I think once you learn the twist, I have to assume that she shot him with a blank. And, you know, he just collapses next to Frank and Frank yeah. says, oh, he's he's not going to make it. And that immediately sends Roy into this protective dad mode. They pull the old pigeon drop on me, Josh. What gotcha. What is Do you know which one is? The yeah, pigeon the pigeon drop is the one they do at the airport with him where they he thinks they're handing him the briefcase full of money and they do the old switcheroo and it's a briefcase full of like 
you know, envelopes or ripped up paper or something. Like I would have thought that was called the old switcheroo. I mean, that seems little, like, uh, I feel like a little on the nose. <laughs> I feel like the old switcheroo is the name for like 50 different cons. I don't. Really sure. I, I mean, the pigeon drop has been in plenty of movies, you know, the sting. Right. And I mean, there's a lot of them. But I don't know what the Jamaican switch is. I just know uh, at one point he says, we'll do the old Jamaican switch, you know. <laughs> that was good. Yeah, that was a pretty good Nicolas Cage right there, Jason. Oh, well. I feel like we have to mention the other, like, Nicolas Cagey moment is when he's freaking out at yeah. the pharmacy. Oh, and he yeah. has that weird line that sounds like it might have been a Nicolas Cage ad lib where he's yelling at the other customer, like, have you ever been stomped on a curve until you yeah. pissed blood or something beat like you that. till you piss blood in the middle of the street that and uh, i what, forgot that line was from this movie i was so excited when it happened when he's <laughs> cooking for allison loman and he says this is spaghetti ayoyo <laughs> Dave, is that moment like in a lot of Nicolas Cage compilations or something? It is, yeah. And like the the losing his shit supercut, that was like the big one that went around the internet a while, a while back. Uh, that was in that. Yeah. See, I feel like it's a shame that people are just looking at that one moment, which is really not representative of this movie. And uh, you know, if you've watched a Nicolas Cage supercut, you should you should then watch this movie. It should bring yes. people into this. But I don't know that it is. Actually, Supercut might be the name of Nicolas Cage's next movie. It could be. He's he's Nicolas Cage has made 10 more movies in the time that we've been recording this podcast. I, I was know. looking up the filmography and it's like we we kind of, you know, joke about uh, the quantity of movies. But he's, you know, he's done some good stuff in the last few years. We could talk about that more in the legacy section. So. Yeah, he has one. I think that's part of the quantity thing is that he does so many movies that for every good one, there's like eight bad ones. And so the bad ones end up outweighing the good ones. But he still does do good work. Certainly. Yeah. And right he's our that. hometown brethren here in Las Vegas. That is true. Yep. We have to uh, we have to give a shout out. I, uh, I Dave, I don't know if you were in on this uh, in the Las Vegas Film Critics Society, which Jason enjoys uh, insulting on this podcast. Yeah, well, talking um, about cons was trying to. Uh, <laughs> I, I was I was hoping we might give Nicolas Cage our uh, Lifetime Achievement Award this this past year in part because he's got this you know connection to Las Vegas. It seems appropriate, yeah. but um, that didn't that didn't go forward. Who so. did they give it to? He, he definitely would be a good one to to uh, give that I, to. I think it was it Ellen Burstyn this year who got it. Ellen uh, Burstyn, uh, what has she ever contributed? <laughs> right, no, I'm not saying that the the it, whether it was her or someone else, I'm not saying that the winner wasn't worthy. Yeah. I'm just saying that Nicolas Cage is worthy. And, I and agree. You know, hopefully we'll yeah. get it to him eventually. I agree with you, my That's friend. Right. And and I, I appreciate his his he's not just he doesn't just live here. Like he's a very like pro Vegas. He like hangs out at downtown Summerlin and yeah. you know, he's he's, he's a Vegas guy. I think his kids yeah. might go to our alma mater, Josh, our old high school there. So oh yeah. Um but look, now that we brought up the Las Vegas Film Critics Society, and we can't go any lower in this episode. Why don't we rate this thing? Yeah, let's do it. Out of out of pygmies, out of pygmies. I was gonna say yeah. out of uh, out of pigeon drops, but uh, you know, either way. He says, "Oh, pygmies all the time." I love it. I didn't even <laughs> notice that. Let's give it to Dave. Let's let's give it to. It's, Dave. One, it's one of his things in the movie. All right, all right, Jason. It's your pick. How many? I uh, gave it three. I liked it. I didn't love it. It's three. I'm. Oh. You know, it's cool. All right. I, I like it more than you. I think I'm going to give it three and a half, which is what I rated it at the time it came out. I think this movie's a lot of fun. So three and a half for me, Dave. I'm going with four. Yeah, that's surprising. This. Jason's the lowest on his pick yeah, episode. That's okay. Right. That's the point sometimes, you know, so. All right. bringing well, attention. Still, I, oh. I'm here for you guys. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> we'll come back then in a moment. We'll talk about the legacy of Matchstick Man. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2003, we have been talking about Jason's pick, Match Sick Men. And uh, this movie doesn't have a huge legacy in part because, again, it wasn't really a hit. It's got a bit of a cult following now, but not, I think, nearly as much as maybe it deserves or it could have. Um, and, and we talked a little bit about how this is such an outlier for Ridley Scott. And the only other movie he made that I think could even be considered close to a comedy is uh, A Good Year with Russell Crowe, which I've never seen. But even that, I think, is not there was it's not this kind of comedy. There was some I mean, I know it's not a comedy, but the relationship between Thelma and Louise 
you know, has comedic. I would have said that too. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a a buddy movie, I guess, that we've got here. But really, I mean, I think if you look at the totality of his filmography, this one really sticks out as very different. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. And he tried something and that's cool. Good for you, man. Right. Um, Yeah. yeah. He's made so many great movies. And then um, one of the most polarizing movies of the last 10, 15 years, The Counselor, which I despise but i know people love that movie it's very strange to me yeah it is i i didn't like it i remember that is a movie that you and i saw together and i think you might have fallen asleep at points during that movie it seems to be Um, a recurring theme on this show dave doesn't it It sure does. Uh, but I mean, I, I I don't have the level of, of vitriol for that movie that you do, but it definitely is a failed experiment, I will say. Um, but at the same time, it is um, as you as you're also saying, it's it's there are people who think that movie is brilliant. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think this movie came up when we talked about the mask because we were talking about Cameron Diaz and her ridiculous performance in The Counselor, um, where she had to redo her entire accent in ADR after in post-production because it was such a failure. Um, Oh my God. That is an interesting, and that movie is is sort of an outlier. I mean, that that and A Good Year, I think, were the two movies that I thought of as, as similar outliers in Ridley Scott's career, which is otherwise a lot of these big, like epic kind of thrillers and action movies and stuff like that. And he's very prolific. He's made, I think, two movies during the pandemic. So he's, I mean, he's in his 80s and he's still just like full steam ahead. And looking good, man. Looking young, right? Yeah. So, hey, Josh. Sure. Uh, Why not? Yeah, you're talking and, you know, we know Gladiator 2 is supposed to come out and another alien movie. So, I mean, he's working, uh, he's working sequels. Fingers crossed. As, that, you know, as he can right there, right? So, uh, right, and there's right. The Blade well, he's Runner also TV one of these show, right? Oh, is there going to be a Blade Runner TV yeah, show? Yeah, I think See, so. I don't even know. He's one of these people who always has a million projects in the works and, and most of them don't ever come to fruition. But I mean, he certainly is keeping himself. Yeah, a few a few of the things to talk about from the recent um, from the the recent filmography. Uh, I did not watch Man in the High Castle or Raised by Wolves, which he's an executive producer on. Have you guys seen either of those shows? Yeah. And Raised by Wolves, he also directed the first two episodes. So I think he was a little more involved in that. And those are both. They're not great, but they're interesting, I think. Um, Raised by Wolves, especially, you can see a lot of the themes from like Blade Runner and from his alien movies, especially the later. I know Dave loves uh, Michael Fassbender and those later alien movies. And there's a lot of that in Raised by Wolves. Yeah. If I ever make time for TV again, Raised by Wolves is the first thing I'm watching. I can't wait to watch it. You should make time for TV. You're not you're not doing really anything special with your life. Um, yeah, no, Dave has Dave has 87 more podcasts to record today. Yeah, so. but have you heard the quality of them, Josh? Eh. <laughs> um, one that's in post production is The Last Duel, which was written by a little writing team known as Aflac and Damon. So that'll be interesting, right? About King Charles and dueling with a knight, and then uh, House of Gucci, which we all saw the shots released on social media of Adam Driver and Lady Gaga. Uh, and they're doing their thing. So I'm sure that'll be a stylish, fun thing. So Yeah, and both of those, again, movies that he's been making during the pandemic. So uh, he seems like one of these directors. He'll be like Clint Eastwood. You know, he'll be 90 and still churning out two movies a year because that's just that's just what he does. Well, yeah, you know? he's he's figured it out, man. So and maybe he right. could, maybe he could bring Russell Crowe back to greatness. That would be something, huh? That would be something. Maybe maybe him and Nicolas Cage put them together. And I don't know. There would be no more room for anything. Other than Sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, and speaking of Nicolas Cage, as we said, he's I mean, he's also extremely prolific um, and, and makes a lot of very, very bad movies, a lot of straight to VOD kind of movies these days where he just, you know, people just hire him to be his crazy Nicolas yeah, Cage do self. Want. Do what you want. Nicholas. Right. And, and I think, you know, sometimes that works out and it's fun. And if the the film around him knows how to use him properly, then then his over the topness is is kind of um, it works. And sometimes it just really, really, really does. And, so. and as I mentioned, it was great in Color Out of Space, which was probably the last one that was really acclaimed. And now we'll see as he plays Joe Exotic in the Joe Exotic miniseries. Yeah, that's can can I say though, like this particular era of Nicolas Cage, like during Matchstick Men. 2002 to 2005, Adaptation, Matchstick Men, National Treasure, Lord of War, and The Weatherman 
I mean, that's a hell of a run. I mean, including National Treasure in there for the popcorn fans. But uh, those are freaking great movies as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And I wanted to bring up Lord of War and The Weatherman, which are both movies that I think were not very successful, but I think are really good and are are really good Nicolas Cage performances around this time. Taking chances yeah. and um, doing things. And like I said, leading man, uh, which Sam Rockwell now is Oscar winner for maybe. Uh, um, I mean, I'm not saying he doesn't deserve an Oscar, but for that movie, three billboards. Yeah, no, of, for for I forgot he won an Oscar for that for for Vice, right? Is it for Vice? No, it wasn't. No, no, for three, three billboards outside of Ebbing, Montana. Oh yeah, well, yeah. really uh, terrible. Both both bad choices there. <laughs> Yeah. So I will say I remember I remember when he was in Vice as George W. Bush, and then I watched The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where he plays uh, Zephod Beeblebrox, the president of the galaxy. I think, and there's like the exact same performance. Well, he's done a lot of good work, and what I'm excited for is, and hopefully it happens, is he's uh, supposed to play Merle Haggard in the Merle Merle Haggard, Haggard biopic. Nice Merle Haggard biopic. Not easy to say, friends. Tongue twister. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean as much as I like those. Oscar choices are not great. I do think Sam Rockwell is a very, very good actor and is very versatile. And uh, he was nominated for an Emmy recently for Fosse Verdon, the miniseries about Bob Fosse, which I haven't watched, but it's supposed to be excellent. And so, you know, I, I'm sure he's quite good at that playing Bob Fosse. And I know Jason loves Bob Fosse. I do love Bob Fosse. And, right. Uh, yeah, right yeah I know. So. I'm saying you, yeah. should, you should watch that. Meanwhile, Alison Lohman lost the screen credit is 2016. Come back to us, Alison Lohman. We miss you. Yeah, and she, like, I think um, after uh, Drag Me to Hell in 2009, which is another movie she's great. That's in. a good movie. Uh, oh, I, I love that movie. Yeah, and she retired. Uh, as you mentioned before, Jason, she's uh, she's got three kids, and she's married to uh, Mark Neveldine, the director of the Crank movies, uh, <laughs> some favorites mm. of Jason's. So I think those credits that she has are all just kind of little cameos and and some in movies that he directed or produced, and she really hasn't been working at all. But I, I agree. If she wanted to come back, I mean, hey, if she's happy, obviously, like, good for her. But I would love to see her in something again. Josh, tell us about where the truth lies. That was a pretty wild one, huh? Yeah, I, I kind of like that. That was a very polarizing. The Adam McGoyan is kind of a um, film noir-ish thing. And that was another movie that had a bunch of big twists that I don't really remember now. But I remember her being good in that. Again, around, you know, there was a period of a few years between uh, Matchstick Men and White Oleander and Where the Truth Lies and Drag Me to Hell that it really seemed like she was going to be a person to watch. And then like, she yeah, obviously yeah. decided that this wasn't for her. And that's, you know, that's well, cool. Well, Where the Truth Lies was shocking because she did White Oleander, Matchstick Men, and Big Fish, where she's playing a very young character, much younger than her age, right? And then Where the Truth Lies is a very sexual movie and she's got these, uh, you know, ex sexually explicit nude scenes. And it's like, it, it's... From what you've seen before, it's very shocking that 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 was the next thing, you know? Right. But I feel like that happens a lot to these actors who play, especially women who play teenagers long past the point where they themselves are actually teenagers. And then they decide they want to do these adult roles and people are like, oh, my God, it's an adult. And like, yeah, it is an adult. I feel like that happened to Zendaya recently um, where she's played teenagers so much and then she does something not that Malcolm and Marie is full of nudity or anything, but it's suddenly she's playing this mature character and people can't wrap yeah, their heads also around Also not full of quality because it is not. A well, right. Movie. That's not. I love yeah. that movie. I, I haven't seen it. You so don't love the movie, Dave. You do not. You I say do. you love the movie. But as we have argued in the past, your reasoning is nonsensical. Enough with you, Dave. I'm pretty sure I won that argument. Dave, so. you're about to lose your pick for this season. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Allison Lohman. We love you. She's great. Uh, come, come back. And what, what a joy in this yes. film. Like, like you said, Josh, you believe her as that character at that age. And they're like, oh, what? <laughs> right. Know? And then that's maybe that's one of the reasons that where the truth lies is shocking because she's so good at playing these young characters. You believe it and you believe that she's young and you are shocked to see that she's an actual adult. But, yeah. But I kind of liked where, again, where the truth lies is a movie that got, it was very polarizing, got a lot of bad reviews, but I remember thinking it was good. So yeah, the Griffin brothers, you know, like you said, some other high stuff, Terriers and uh, the oceans movies, but not as much as you might think. Um, so yeah, whatever. I don't know. Not much with them really. Yeah. They seem like they were going to be a bigger thing, uh, especially Ted Griffin after the oceans movies. But, um, and Terriers has quite a, has got a cult. I know it's supposed to be like one of the, great one season shows that there is and it should have gone longer 
Uh, Eric Garcia, the novelist uh, that obviously wrote this book that the screenplay and film is based on, has done rather well for himself. Yeah, he has a whole series of books about a dinosaur that solves crimes. So there's that. Nicolas Cage should definitely play that character. Crime Salvasaurus. Anonymous Anonymous Rex is what it's actually called. But Crime (laughs) Salvasaurus, also good. Can't be any worse than Anonymous Rex. So on that note, that is Matchstick Man. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. You can. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. J Harris Comedy on Twitter. My website, goforjason.com, is bad, but not as bad as Malcolm and Marie. We're at awesomemovieyear.com on the website and Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. One day, John August will tweet back to us. Are you, do you keep tweeting him? Yeah, whenever they bring up something on script notes that relates to Awesome Movie Year, I throw it at him. So. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep going. We're running a long con on John August. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we continue talking about all the movies we talk about on the show. And Malcolm and Marie. A lot of discussion. And Malcolm and Marie. Check out that episode. (laughs) What do we have in our next episode, Jason? The Sundance 2003 winner. It was an excellent film the first time I saw it. I wonder how I'll like it this time. American Splendor. So tune in next time for American Splendor. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. What do we have in our next episode, Jason? Hey, Josh, we're doing the Sundance winner of 2003. And Josh, yet another one that I haven't seen in a long time, but I remember really liking, so I'm excited to revisit it. Uh, American Splendor, Splendor, Splendier, <laughs> American Splendor, the Harvey P. Carr. Josh, it's called American. <laughs> it's called American. Josh. <laughs> hey, Josh, we're revisiting the uh, 